you know, traditional banking, traditional borrowing on an Indian reservation is, is almost non-existent. Um, as a CDFI, we have seen that. We feel like as a CDFI, it's our job to sort of run to the problem and try to make a difference. And so, you know, we've worked very hard to try to provide credit to, to, to make loans on Indian reservations for very important community development or other infrastructure projects. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. We run toward problems and leaders keep it real. That was Doug Bistry, the founder, president, and CEO of Clearinghouse CDFI, who shares with you the challenges disadvantaged communities face with the receiving loans, the most difficult decision he's ever had to make, and the importance of following your conviction. So people, let's give it up for the real Doug Bistry. Enjoy. Other than that, we'll get started here. Let's bring the energy today. Uh, these podcasts, you know, they, they go long and we want to make sure we're giving people uh, a quality interview today. So we'll get started here in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Releaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining me today is Doug Bistry, the founder, president, and CEO of Clearinghouse Community Development Financial Institutions. Doug, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. So Doug, not only are you a great man, but your organization ranked on our Real Leaders 2020 100 Top Impact Companies. So the people want to know, what is Clearinghouse CDFI and how does it generate impact? Well, first off, I want to say how excited and humbled and proud we are to be uh, listed among uh, those group of businesses. It's really amazing. Um so thank you for that. Um, Clearinghouse CDFI is, as our name indicates, a community development financial institution, which really means that we're a lot like a bank, except that the only loans we make are those that have some sort of tangible community benefit. Um, that can be varied and vast. It, it can be everything from job creation, affordable housing. It can be helping a nonprofit group. But everything we make a loan on is designed to make the world uh, a better place. And so um, CDFIs are throughout the country. There's over a thousand of them. It's a designation that we receive through the U.S. Department of Treasury. But it's really all about making loans, providing credit in areas that are both good for the world and uh, we'll, we'll bring about positive change. So, Doug, you're the founder of Clearinghouse. What were some of your career experiences before uh, Clearinghouse? And uh, what made you really make this change to say, hey, we want to provide loans to people to transform these uh, marginal communities? Well, it was really interesting as I was running a nonprofit organization that was brokering uh, loans to banks. And the idea then was to try to get banks to step up and make these impactful loans in the community uh-huh. and try to get them to share in the risk. Um, I tried that for three or four years, and the reality is is that it was terribly unsuccessful. Um, couldn't get the banks to step up, uh, found that you know our loans were at the bottom of the pile, so to speak. And I decided that if we were ever going to be a lender that was impactful and was going to make a difference, we had to raise our own money 
and make our own credit decisions. So in the mid 90s, I decided to start Clearinghouse CDFI. And we started by raising a million dollars of equity capital and $10 million of loan funds. And we just started making loans. Started making loans. And those loans uh-huh. really go a long way. Now, I just want to take it back uh, a step. You were having trouble getting these nonprofits loans to, to start and have these impact in these communities. Is this because of the model? Is this because of maybe some stereotyping along the way, um, some cognitive bias? What to you were some of the, the, the blocks or the, uh, the things in the way, the barriers in the way that were stopping these uh, communities from receiving these loans? Yeah. Well, Kevin, I, I think you're you're um, on to something there. Um, there, there's a law in this country called the Community Reinvestment Act, and a lot of people know it as CRA. And it's designed to prevent banks from redlining or um, excluding low income or communities of color uh, where they make their loans. That is, uh, in fact, against the law. And the Community Reinvestment Act um, combats that. And so we often banks get involved or want to work with a company like ours to help them comply with the Community Reinvestment Act. But what we found is exactly what you said, is that if we would submit a loan to a bank and say to them, you know, this is a CRA loan, automatically the underwriters considered that as a greater risk, uh, a, a loan that they're likely to lose money on, or, you know, something that is somehow flawed. And I think, you know, I came to the realization that it was that stigma that actually um, prevented these loans from being funded. And if, if uh, somebody or something, and, and we feel like our company is that company that did that, uh, would look beyond sort of the stigma of, oh, this is a, a loan benefiting really low income people, but really looked at the credit and looked at the metrics and said, you know, this is a good loan. It, it's also going to do wonderful things, but this is a good credit risk. And I think that's really what, uh, distinguishes us or differentiates us from a conventional lender. So uh, the risk is a big factor for uh, insurance uh, broker or just insurance agents in general uh, or any type of loan. Um, What are your success rates? I mean, are you are you seeing that these communities, these people are paying back all their loans and they're able to make those up and and earn a return on all on all these? Well, I'm going to be the first to say that, you know, as any lender, we've had some borrowers that, you know, have not performed and and not been able to pay us back. But what I'm delighted to tell you is that historically, and this goes over, you know, 22 year uh, history now, um, our our total loss rate is less than one percent. Now, what's ironic about that is that is much better or lower than most conventional banks who are not uh, doing these, quote unquote, riskier community development loans, uh, the type of loans that they would perceive as more risky, um, we found that, in fact, uh, our borrowers do pay us back in general. Are you finding that your employees in, uh, in Clearinghouse are coming to Clearinghouse because they want to have an impact in these communities? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, in a tight um, employment market, which we're in, uh, sometimes it is, is really hard to find you know, great people. One of the distinct advantages we have is we're able to say to people that what you do every day is going to make a difference in the world and it's going to result in in positive uh, changes. 
Uh, you, you may be helping low income people. You may be helping a, a small business stay in business or expand. Uh, you may be helping a, a nonprofit, a boys and girls club, get a new gymnasium or something like that, that, you know, it, particularly younger people can really appreciate. We're, we're finding that, um, you know, the, the, the value at workplace is often about salary, uh, what they're getting paid per hour. But that intangible that you referenced is extremely important. And we do have a number of our employees who just talk about that. And what's really funny is some of the people that are in the trenches, so to speak, in lending, they're doing, you know, underwriting or loan servicing. And, you know, they're, they're not as connected to our borrowers. And then at our annual shareholder meeting, uh, we feature two or three of our borrowers on some sort of video presentation. And they'll come up to me and they'll say, Doug, that is just amazing. I, I'm so proud that I work here. And it's so great to, to see what we're doing with our loans. So um, sometimes it's a little bit of a delay, but you're right. It, it makes a big difference. And we're seeing that across the board. And we're also seeing it in terms of retaining employees as well. Yeah, that's great because sometimes it's difficult to realize and understand and visualize your impact that you're having in your day-to-day operations. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Uh, now, when you set out, when you started this organization, uh, you, you said you came from the nonprofits. They are struggling with getting these loans from these banks, and you wanted to transform these lives in these local communities. Uh, now, has your core values of the of this company changed since you you grown? And what are some of the challenges that uh, you faced uh, along the way while this company has been growing, in terms of you uh-huh. know alignment and vision? Wow, that's a really good question and one I I probably haven't thought a lot about, but I'd like to say that the core values we had um, when I started this company are pretty close to what I consider to be the core values of our company. Our corporate culture is extremely important to me and I spend a lot of time thinking about it, talking to our employees about it and trying to reinforce it. And I, I think as a startup business, um, you're so focused on surviving and, um, you know, you know, making sure that you don't go out of business that, uh, sometimes you probably, uh, don't think as much about, um, the core values and the things that make you great. Um, we've been fortunate, um, we've worked hard and we've achieved success. And so I think we're at a place now where I can spend a little bit more time talking about, uh, our corporate culture, our core values as a company and, and what makes us tick and why we're different, and why we're, um, uh, I would say, a successful uh, CDFI versus maybe some others that have struggled more than us. So why you're different now, what about the loans that you're giving? Uh, for instance, uh, how do you determine what a uh, who you can give a loan to? I mean, are there some organizations that you can't give a loan to because of their social or environmental impact? Explain to our audience how this works. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so as a CDFI, our mission is to provide credit um, in areas that credit traditionally um, is lacking. So for low-income communities, distressed communities, uh, populations that traditionally have had a hard time uh, accessing credit in a capitalist society. So that, uh, by definition, is you know what we are and who we do. Um, there's a percentage of loans that we can do that 
maybe are, are a little bit outside of that. But what to answer your question directly is that we try to see on every single loan we do, you know, what is the community benefit? And sometimes it's really just helping a small business. But um, we have had to turn down loans. So, for example, if somebody came to us and said, gosh, you know, Doug, we have this raw land and it's overlooking the beach in Dana Point or La Jolla and we're going to build, you know, five spec houses and sell them. They're, they're going to be you know, beautiful homes and we absolutely are going to make a ton of money. And all we need from you guys is a construction loan. Uh, we would probably tell that borrower, gee, you know, we're not the loan to help you out. Um, however, if you were going to put a community center there or a charter school or something that would benefit low and moderate income communities or populations or maybe even uh, a factory where uh, you're going to have a lot of jobs, um, those are the types of uh, criteria that we have to look at and we have to make sort of a yes or no determination from an impact standpoint. And then, of course, the, the other thing is that obviously every loan we make, we have to feel like is a good credit risk that the borrower is going to be able to pay us back and that, you know, they're, they're not going to take our loan money and then falter with it. A lot of uh, our audience, I'm sure people in general, have some hysteria towards the housing market and just loans in general, subprime loans, things like that. Uh, that example you just gave, Doug, a uh, very difficult decision to turn down You know, a lot of money in this case. What's the most difficult decision you've ever had to make? Well, I think the most difficult decision I've ever had to make is on the other end of the spectrum, where... We have a borrower, and, and, and in this particular instance, it was uh, a small business on um, Indian Reservation um, trying to take uh, their business to another level, and they had achieved some success and, and actually had orders um, exceeding their ability to meet the demand for them. But, um, you know, as with any small business on an Indian Reservation, you know, lots and lots of, you know, problems and obstacles for them to overcome. And the hard decision there was not from an impact standpoint. I knew if we made this loan, it was going to really help them. The difficult decision for me in that particular instance was, you know, are we going to be able to get paid back on this loan? Is the risk um, outside of the standards we're willing to accept? And uh, on this particular loan, I'm, I'm really glad we did it. Um, we helped a business stay alive and, and grow. Um, they're still in business today. They're still struggling. Uh, the name of the business is Native American Natural Food. So any of the listeners want to support an unbelievable organization, a uh, small business that is on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, um, that would be great. But it, it is uh, those type of decisions that I think I struggle with the most, Kevin. Indian reservations are, are difficult. A lot of people don't understand uh, kind of why they are the way they are, how they got to that that place and what America's involvement was in these communities, the separation and, and kind of uh, their jurisdiction, I guess. Uh, could you explain to our audience like your background and like, I guess your knowledge of these Indian, Indian reservations and what some misconceptions are? Well, first off, you know, the, the biggest difficulty is that, you know, we live and operate in a capitalist society and obtaining credit uh, is extremely important. And, I don't know about you or many of your listeners, but almost everyone in my life, uh, including myself, has had to rely on banks to help me get, you know, a home, uh, a car, and it's all been about the bank basically 
lending the money and taking a lien on property. Mm-hmm. Well, the way this country set up the reservation system is that um, Native Americans cannot, in fact, pledge that land to a bank. So you have this system uh, in our country where you know banks provide credit and they secure the credit via land. Uh, and you have you know traditional banking, traditional borrowing on an Indian reservation is is almost non-existent. Um, as a CDFI, we have seen that. We feel like as a CDFI, it's our job to sort of run to the problem and try to make a difference. And so, you know, we've worked very hard to try to provide credit to 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 make loans on Indian reservations for very important community development or other infrastructure projects. But that's just the biggest inherent problem. I think some of the misconception is that, you know, the tribes either have lots and lots of money because they're they have gaming. Um, there, there are some, you know, wealthy tribes that that have uh, been able to use gaming to to sort of change the uh, the dynamics of their uh, existence. But the other one is that you know you just can't do business um, in Indian country, and, and that that it's it's just too hard, or that you know you can be down the road and, and the rug can be pulled out from under you. And so um, those are some of the misconceptions we've seen. And uh, I'm not going to say it's easy. Um, but I think it's worthwhile. And it's one of the things I'm the most proud of as a CDFI that we do. Well, I think there's a common theme with a lot of the impact uh, companies is that you know, they see these problems as business opportunities. Uh, would you agree with that statement? And uh, would you maybe illustrate to our audience a story? People love stories, Doug. Would you, would you illustrate to our audience a story of a, a problem that became an opportunity and now is transforming some lives? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I sort of mentioned Native American natural foods, and um, I, I will come back to that first, then I'll tell you another true story. Um, the problem with Native American natural foods is they created a health food bar uh, made out of buffalo meat and cranberries. They used an ancient tradition that their ancestors had used because cranberries are a natural preservative, and that was what they used to keep the meat fresh um, before there was refrigeration. So they created this um, meat bar called the Tonka Bar, um, and it took off, and it did great, and it went really, really well. And they were in Whole Foods, and they were in REI, and and, uh, they were growing beyond imagination. And unfortunately, um, uh, I better not say who the companies were, but two prominent companies all of your listeners would know created two copycat bars. Uh, These are big food companies. And they uh, essentially have uh, stolen the market from them. Sad as it can be, um, it's reality. And everyone knows that business is difficult and it's really hard in the food business. But when something like that happens, uh, it really makes you take a step back and wonder and go, oh, my gosh, you know, with all the obstacles. And here's a group that began to have success only to have um, two prominent food companies come in and, and, and basically kind of copy the idea and and take it away from them. So that's a a not so great. That company is still in business today. They're working through the internet and we're hoping to help them revive them and and get them back and and bring them to prominence. But the other um, story I want to tell you about is um, a time that I was on the uh, Navajo reservation with one of our Native American advisory board members who happened to live there. And I'm driving um, in the car and we're driving through what would look like uh, a low income neighborhood. And 
a lot of the houses had a front porch. And I would uh, see on a lot of these front porches, you know, sort of a big wooden barrel, a kind, you know, that you normally would see like wine stored in. Hmm. And, you know, I sort of casually said to the people that were driving me around, I said, why, why does everyone have a, a big, you know, wooden barrel in their front yard or in their, on their porch? And the answer was, well, that's where they store their water. And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, well, these, these people, there's no running water. So they have, they have, you know, faucets and sinks and they have showers, but there's no running water. And, um, it, it was just, you know, mind boggling to me that, that in this day and age, in our modern era with everything that we have, that there are still people living, um, in reservations that don't have running water, but that is in fact true. We made a loan, um, on the Navajo nation using new markets tax credits to, um, create a wastewater treatment plant, which was going to allow them to complete the process of bringing running water into these homes. And I'm, and I'm happy to say that today, um, in part because of our effort, uh, many of those homes now have running water and they can take showers and they can do the things that we all take for granted. But that just gives you an indication of, of some of the of that low-income people, particularly low-income people living on reservations are facing today. That's incredible. I mean, I, I had no idea. And just to go yeah. back to kind of how it all started, you know, here we are, uh, the Western frontier. Uh, we, we think the best way is to have a federal banking system and, you know, they didn't agree with it. And it's just a, it's a bloody history. It's a, it's a crazy background. You know, I don't know all about it, but, um, from what I've read and, and heard, it's, it's pretty, pretty dramatic and drast. But, you know, it, it, it's going to take uh, a lot of uh, leadership to bring these communities uh, back to, you know, the, the first world. Uh, and I guess, you know, someone told me, Doug, this is a leadership podcast. So what, what do you think uh, or what type of leadership do you think is needed in, in order to uh, help out these marginal communities within our own borders? Hmm. Well, one of the things that's occurring right now is that I mentioned Community Reinvestment Act, the, the law that requires banks to, to reinvest in the areas where they're doing business. Um, there is a reform going on right now. And I think leadership would be to support the reform because that reform will give banks credit for investing in areas that they call um, CRA deserts or areas where there are no bank branches. So right now, the way that law works is that, you know, if a bank has a branch in that area, they need to do things that'll benefit people of all income levels around that branch. But you have gigantic swaths of this country that have no bank branches. And it's not just Indian reservations, although that, that is very common for reservations not to have a bank branch, but um, other areas, uh, low-income areas, uh, the, the you know, Central Valley, Appalachia, areas where there just isn't a, a lot of banking. And so the reform now that is, is occurring will give banks credit for investing in those CRA deserts. And so um, that's something right now that I think people could get behind and support. Uh, it's the uh, comptroller of the currencies office uh, that is providing that sort of um, uh, uh, regulatory change that they're working on right now. I think beyond that is just um, if people are thinking about business opportunities or where they can locate or what they can do is to um, not just exclude uh, reservations as an area that they would consider, um, particularly if it's a, a, 
you know, a warehouse or storage, cold storage, you know, something of that nature. Um, the, the other thing that we're working on right now is trying to restore the buffalo in Indian country. Um, there are a number of um, uh, efforts underway. There is the, uh, the Tonka Fund, which is uh, restoring uh, buffalo so that uh, Native American populations can get back in the business of raising buffalo. Uh, it is one of the healthiest meats out there, which I think fits in well with uh, people's health concerns right now. And so, you know, those are some some examples of leadership and what people can do. And and by supporting those things, even if it's just a monetary uh, financial donation, uh, that would be extremely important. Well said, uh, Doug. And, and that's I just want to uh, chime on that really quick. The buffalo. Uh, apparently, back in the day, they used just they just used to be everywhere. Uh, like I think there was a story. It's like yeah, like people just be on trains. They lean out the train, just shoot a buffalo that was just right there. It was just normal. And then since you know fur trade came in and then uh, the whole western frontier, they've just decimated these beautiful large animals. Uh, so to have that back would be great. And and to do that, you know, would that be a for-profit solution or a non-profit solution? And that's going to allude to my transition to my next question is the leadership that is needed, the the acts of, of society that are needed to sustain these populations, to sustain these animals. What is a, the non-profit's role? You mentioned you were in non-profits earlier. And what is the for-profit industry's role? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. Um and I think I don't know if I mentioned it before, but, you know, we are a for profit CDFI. And that was something that uh, we incorporated that way from the beginning. And I, I I always tell people the big difference between us and nonprofit CDFIs is we pay taxes. Otherwise, we're exactly the same from a mission standpoint. Um, but I think um, I think particularly as it relates to restoring the buffalo, um, as I mentioned, there is a, a strong nonprofit effort uh, being undertaken right now in terms of. Of doing that, and the Tonka Fund is a is a great example of, um, but but and what they're doing is um, purchasing land. Um, my understanding it'll cost like you know three hundred eighty thousand dollars, and with that you can you know begin to 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 build up the the buffalo population. But on a on a for profit end, I, I think it it sort of goes back to. Um, what we, what I was talking about before, which is to, to think of these areas as uh, potential places where you can do business. Um, Indian country uh, has uh, some advantages uh, from a business perspective. And I think as it relates to, you know, the average consumer, if you, you know, think about if you're out to have, um, you know, you're going to go to Outback Steakhouse and you decide, you know, gee, I'll try the buffalo, um, you know, getting consumers more comfortable with eating Buffalo rather than having a steak or ribs or fish or something like that um, would be a small way that um, people could uh, could help out. But I think it really boils down to um, looking at Indian country in a way that says, you know, is there something that I can do there, uh, be it from a, from a business level or an individual level and not just writing it off and not just forgetting about it and not thinking about it, which I think all too often happens in our in our country. Doug, the reason I like social entrepreneurs so much are because not only is it difficult to start a company, it's difficult to start a company and not always, like you said, go for something that's going to make the most money. It's uh-huh. difficult to always have that integrity and stick to those values and stick to the mission of the company. 
what has been a thing that has kept you so focused on this journey? Uh, and, and like on a personal note, like what are some challenges that you've had to deal with and how have you been able to get through them? Yeah. Um, I think for me personally, um, I've always been a person that has had a lot of drive and, um, uh, the term I use is grit. And I think grit is, um, something that, that internally you tell yourself, you know, I'm going to make this work no matter what. And when people say, you know, you're nuts, you're crazy, you know, Doug, you can't possibly make loans to nonprofits and be profitable. Um, you know, you have to hear that and say, no, uh, I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm. Um, so, so that's, um, that's one thing. Uh, I'm also a person of faith and I have a, a spiritual, uh, part of me that makes me realize that what I'm doing here is a much smaller part of the giant universe. And, and with the gifts that I've been given, the most important thing I can do is share them. And, um, fortunately I've been given, uh, some wonderful gifts and some gifts of, um, you know, foresight and the ability to, to, to take this, uh, lending organization and take it to the next level and help a lot of people with it. And so, um, I, I derive a great deal of pleasure from that. And, um, you know, that's a, a, a real personal thing that, that doesn't work for everybody. But for me, um, there's always been a deeper purpose of what I'm doing and the work that I'm, I'm performing. Well said, Doug. And, and grit, faith, yeah. uh, so some qualities of, of, uh, of leadership. Uh, you're attracting these people you mentioned before that are coming to the space who want to be a part of this mission. So to bring this full circle, uh, I want to ask you, what is your definition of a real leader? Well, well, you know, I, I knew you were going to get around to that. And, uh, you know, I thought that there's, it, it's, it's hard to sort of put it into sort of a short sentence, uh, Kevin. And, um, you know, you know, th- there are a lot of different traits that I think a real leader has to have. I think a real leader, you know, has to listen um, first and foremost and, and, and being able to listen and to hear people and to understand where they're coming from, uh, I think, is, is probably one important characteristic. Um, the other thing is, is, and I think about this as it relates to our business is being able to empower people that work for you and allow them to sort of go and and do things. Um, you know, I, my management style is consensus. It's not at all dictatorial or, you know, you, you have to do this because this is the way we do it. Um, so I try to empower my employees. I try to let them do their job. Um, and I try to interfere as, um, least as possible. And I think a real leader can be comfortable and, um, not threatened if other people have success and and do great around them and, and benefit the overall good. You also have to recognize that everybody has their own style, uh, their own quirks, their own issues, baggage, you could call it, um, just the way they deal with it. You know, some people are really good at emails. Other people aren't. Some people are great at petitions, but you know, they, they, they're short with people. And so I think a real leader has to look at somebody and see them in their totality and recognize that everybody has strengths and weaknesses. You know, I have strengths and weaknesses. Um, the people I work with have strengths and weaknesses. And I think all of those things are, um, you know, things that, um, a real leader has, but, you know, probably, um, you know, the most important thing for me, um, if I had to sort of 
take everything and say, what is the most important thing? And that is a real leader is someone that can really follow their convictions and uh, do what they believe is the right thing to do, particularly if it's in an environment or a setting where others are, again, telling you that you're wrong, uh, you know, you don't have this right, you're making a big mistake. And I think a real leader sometimes has to say, you know, gee, I understand where you're coming from and I know what you're saying and I, I hear why you think this is a mistake, but it's important enough to me that I'm going to go ahead and continue to do this because in my heart and soul, I believe it's the right thing to do. And and there have been not a tremendous amount of times where I've had to do that, but there have certainly been times um, in my personal and professional career where I've had to sort of say, you know, I don't care what anyone else says, uh, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to forge forward. Beautiful. Well said, Doug. And uh, I just hope our audience appreciates this interview as much as I did today. Talked about a lot, though. We talked about your journey from the nonprofits. And it's a little bit difficult to get some loans sometimes. And why is that? So we're going to start a community development financial institution clearinghouse. Um, and, and what are some of the challenges with that redlining, stereotyping? Uh, how do we turn problems into opportunities? We talked about uh, the Indian uh, or Native American reservations today uh, and then the importance of sticking to your values. So, Doug, just want to appreciate your time coming here back on the Real Leaders podcast for Doug Bistry. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, listen, find your own style and empower people and make sure to follow your convictions. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate your time. Kevin, thank you so much. I appreciate Real Leaders. Thank you. All right, folks. And if you enjoyed that interview, make sure you are subscribed to the Real Leaders podcast because we are going to be featuring many of the 100 top impact companies coming up here throughout the months of February and March. If you haven't listened to the ones that have been released already, by all means, check them out. And as you will hear at the end of every single one, we are giving away a free special edition, folks. That's right. You heard it correctly. A free special edition when you go online to real-leaders.com slash impact-awards and enter in your email. What you're going to receive are about 32 pages featuring our 100 top impact companies their stories, what they deem as impact, along with our cover story with Miyoko Shinner. So you won't want to miss it. It's all free, folks. Go online. Again, real-leaders.com slash impact-awards. Do us a favor, sign up, get our email, and most importantly, people, keep it real.